Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Now, today I'm talking to a very special man. It's Mr. Mark Ericillo from Masters Advocates. He is the state member for Victoria for the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia. He's a candidate for the board of directors for the Real Estate Institute of Victoria as well. And he's been running a fantastic business in the buyers agent and property management space in Melbourne for a very long, long time. We have a chat to him, I suppose, in two parts. The first part is we talk about Melbourne. Where are the pockets that investors can be looking to get properties that have growth potential with reasonable yields? We talk about price points and how much you might need to spend to be investing in what Mark would consider worthwhile investment grade pockets in Victoria or in Melbourne. And then the second part of the interview, we're really talking about the political sphere at the moment. So as at the time of recording, the National Cabinet had met the day before talking about rental freezes and all sorts of minimum standards and land tax issues we're bringing up with Mark. And he gives us his assessment of the reason why Victoria has been less popular for investors and whether some of these announcements and these policies are likely to help solve the rental affordability problems that we have in Victoria and indeed the country. It's an awesome interview with Mark, which I'm sure you're going to get something out of. Here's Mark. Mark Ericello, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Hey, thanks, Mike. Great great to see you and thanks for having me as a, as a guest. Pleasure it's to be a- here. It's a great uh, pleasure and I must say it's long overdue having you for a number of reasons uh, because you're really sort of Mr. Melbourne when it comes to uh, property investing and investment advice. Uh, You've also uh, been a real advocate for some of the proposed legislation changes which I want to pick your brain on but let's start with your hometown uh, Melbourne. I want to sort of get your sense of where the the market is up to at the moment. If you look at the latest sort of core logic data, you sort of see Melbourne is is probably underperforming nationally in a marginal way. We're talking about it's it's two percent up for the quarter compared to two point nine percent nationally, and annually it's down four percent as opposed to three point four percent nationally. What what sort of where are we at in the in the market in in overall Melbourne? Yeah, look, you know. Considering that the outlook was probably going to be more grim in the last twelve months, uh, that's that's not bad. At least we're up rather than uh, in the, in the negative. And and since March, you've probably seen that recovery uh, in in Melbourne and uh, also all the other factors. So you know, post COVID, still recovering from the mass exodus uh, and and uh, you know other areas of construction and government affecting interest rate changes affecting everyone nationally but but definitely affecting uh, investors in Melbourne as a whole that were looking at other things like the rental uh, reforms and and costs there and other tax reforms and discussions so uh, you know considering all of that uh, you know rounded sort of information I think up up uh, you know, 2.4, and it'll probably look better uh, at the end of the next quarter, I'd say, now, especially now that interest rates have been on hold uh, for two months running. The sentiment is getting a little bit more confident, but yep. we've got a long way to go. But yeah. uh, still still better than most of the uh, you know, leading economists were predicting. Yeah, and I do want to get onto the legislation stuff um, soon. When it comes to price points for investors that – 
you know, really do have the whole country to, to choose from. And our own data is saying that uh, people are, are buying further and further from, from where they live. Yeah. Is, is Melbourne and, and sort of, I know we probably shouldn't say Melbourne and there's markets within markets, but let's talk about Melbourne, you know, within sort of 10 or 15 Ks of the CBD. Is it still a viable option for property investors that have, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to spend? Or is, is the quality of asset that you need to get some good results and some good returns at a higher price point, which forces people to look elsewhere, do you think? I feel that that discussion of five to 10 kilometers of the CBD, that was always hot at the beginning of my career, like going back over 20 years ago. Uh, now for houses, if you're wanting to secure a house under 700,000 as an, as an investment, that's, that's, you know, good quality structure. Uh, you know, land, you may not be able, may not be large enough to subdivide, but you're still going to have growth potential and, and following out that 20k to 30k radius, you can definitely still get, get assets that don't need too much invested to meet uh, minimum standards for investment. Uh, you know, maybe some cosmetic appeal injected, ten, twenty thousand dollars to improve a property, and and a decent yield for a house, three to four percent. Following the main infrastructure, main train lines out of the city, uh, you'll get that in the north and west definitely, and then some uh, further further east. Um, you know, depending on on the location. Uh, and and some further out in the bay side, probably closer to that forty to fifty kilometer uh, radius. But but ten or fifteen k's, you're probably looking at good size villa units and townhouses in established suburbs that can still lend to to be good investments. That's that's what we're finding. Yeah, and for people that don't understand. Melbourne as intimately as yourself. Talk us through these these rings. So five or ten kilometers from the city, you know, is is this a, a ten or twenty minute commute, you know, for the properties that are we're talking, you know, say twenty or thirty Ks, is is the value of that really dependent on how close it is to a rail link or or a link road? Yes. You know, help help us sort of understand the I guess the geography of it. Yeah, so from from the CBD, uh, Melbourne CBD, or, or you know, Yarra River as well. If we're looking north side, for example, and northwest, uh, the traffic and infrastructure improvements are still uh, needing a lot of a, a lot of uh, work and, and gain. Because yes, you can be in gridlock and and time like twenty minutes in traffic or half an hour is probably more realistic uh, yep. to get within that sort of thirty k radius. Uh, and it does build up as you go out to these new estates that have been developed in the last 20, 20 years. Uh, traffic does build up. So staying on the train grid, uh, yeah, you can get in within that sort of half an hour period uh, and, and depending on the services. But I find that uh, with, you know, suburbs, if you're familiar with the Western Ring Road, inside the Western Ring Road in the north and the west, that's where you know, prices will heading south, coming in south of the Western Ring Road. That's where uh, you tend to get a little bit more demand, more competition. We're getting getting a, an actual house as an investment or to occupy under 700000 is a little bit less likely. Uh, we'll need work or, you know, it'll be borderline knockdown or needing some major work and renovations or improvements. So you're going to have to budget for that uh, and not as easy to get uh, funding for improvements in construction anymore. Yep. Uh, but going outside the Western Ring Road, just outside it, uh, in the northern corridors, places like Laylaw, uh, Epping, Craigieburn, uh, in the west, 
just inside the Western Ring Road are Deer, Sunshine, uh, and then heading out, you, you've got suburbs like Deer Park and, and uh, heading further west can get a little bit more affordable. Yeah, uh, or or as far as Point Cook and Werribee, it's it's uh, yeah a, a bit further out, but yep. but still very affordable. Yep. Um, when it comes to the the land supply, is there a point at which you go so far outside of Mem- Melbourne that you worry that there is a little bit too much land, so that there could be you know quite a few house and land packages coming on the market that would influence the the gains of, of the property, or are we talking suburbs that you've just mentioned that they're actually kind of still sort of in a ring, and and that's not an influence we need to worry about as investors? Yeah, so the the, the um, suburbs I mentioned are, are fairly established, and they were you know. Uh, release from you know individual property owners or farmers over the last few decades where there were little little estates redeveloped by builders and 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 land release where some custom builders came in for owners of the land it, you know, it's sort of sort of a, a blend where it's not as obvious that you're in an estate and they're well established now uh, but definitely going further out when you start hitting that 45 50 kilometer radius it, I guess it's a benefit as well as uh, you can see it as a negative sometimes that we've got so much land geographically to improve infrastructure and, and expand the suburbs compared to other capital cities that might be a bit landlocked between um, uh, you know, uh, the, the landscape to develop. But I would, yes, be careful with off-the-plan new estates, more, more so from the fact unless you're willing to buy and hold and uh, wait until that estate is developed, uh, because for the first decade, if there's multiple builders and there's risks with new builds as well, holding and, and waiting for that to, to um, uh, develop and get the, get the growth while there's yep. new estates, you know, new farmland, new estates being developed and released within neighbouring towns for the next 10, 15 years, uh, you're not going to get much growth on your resale. You might struggle to get the right rental return when you've got a, 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 a you know, Lego city so to speak, of the same build, same quality, oversupply for the resale and rent. They're the risks there unless you're, you know, you're looking for, um, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, large cash purchases where you're getting a return and depreciation. But I, I'd always buy for growth first in an established area. Yep. Uh, and, you know, depending if you've got the means to do it, if you've got the, you know, if you can service that, that type of purchase. Yeah, for sure. So and come, you- coming closer in. Yeah, and you're probably preaching to the converted um, as listeners of this show, Mark. We, yeah. we agree with you on that one, I think, wholeheartedly. I was recording a podcast yesterday, a, a different show, um, and we were small, looking at the Australian dropout. Property Investors uh, Survey um, in Property Investor Magazine, and it was talking about the ideal yield from survey respondents, and it, it kind of sat somewhere around that sort of 5 5.5% um, with the median sort of Falling really between about three point six and I think about six point six. So if oh, we're we're that's looking, good. I got in- your back. It dropped out for a few seconds there. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I'll start that question again. I was recording uh, an episode yesterday of uh, a different show where we were talking about the Australian Property Investor Survey, and they were talking about the ideal yields as. Um, as nominated by survey respondents, and it was sort of somewhere in that 3.6 to 6.6 mark with the majority of people sort of looking around about 5%. Now, typically in places like Sydney and Melbourne, 
uh, we're sort of taught to believe that those kinds of yields aren't necessarily available, but you know the real benefit is that yes, the yields might be a little bit lower, but the capital growth prospects are are better. Where where do sort of yields fit if we're talking you know houses or townhouses in suburbs that you would recommend as as being kind of investment grade properties? Yeah, no, it's good good question and survey. Uh, I, I feel that. Yes, you do get more growth in the in the capital cities. You also should have uh, lower vacancy rates, uh, which is important post purchase for investment. Uh, and and uh, also, I guess the demographics of tenants in the metro areas and um, uh, you know long long term uh, benefits of supply and and demand. The demand will keep increasing with population growth. So so that's important to take into account. But that. For houses in the metro areas, say if we're using that 30 to 50 kilometre radius that we discussed, uh, for houses and if, you know land component and values there, say 450 square metres plus, uh, you're probably looking between that three to four percent yield average uh, yep. with the with the types of properties and you know purchase acquisition costs for a house that doesn't need too much work, you know, might need some cosmetics. Uh, cosmetic updates and some electrical plumbing improvements, but structurally should be okay. The cost that you pay, you should be seeing around that three to four percent yield. Larger land components and closer in the metro, maybe the uh, twenty to thirty. Uh, so, uh, you know, inside the twenty k radius, so you yep. know, zero to twenty k, you might even get lower yield. You know, close two point five two percent because you're going to have the growth and higher acquisition costs. Uh, so. You know, if you're looking at villa units and and good townhouses that we purchase in in established areas, you you might see higher yield, four to five percent. Uh, otherwise, to get that six, you've got to start looking at other um, uh, you know assets, maybe in regional, you know, the major regional cities in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, and like we specialise more northwest, and where that affordability is there for investors and owner occupiers, sub one million. Uh, and and uh, the you know colleagues and associates in buyers advocacy around Victoria that might specialise Bayside or uh, southeastern suburbs and eastern suburbs, you know, obviously yields might be a bit lower because acquisition cost is higher. But, mm. but they have other opinions there as well of what what you can achieve for investment and other benefits too. Yeah, and I suppose everyone's got different strategies. And if you're looking at your first investment property or your tenth investment property, you're probably talking some some different things. But there's certainly plenty of opportunities in that kind of northwestern area. And I think in some respects it's it's undervalued compared to the east. But there's a real east versus west kind of thing going on in Melbourne, right? That perhaps us non Melbourneians don't understand. Yeah, and it may it may change. Uh, you know, with with one infrastructure improvements, which is you know slowly improving, but thanks to the government, we, you know, that's another topic. Things get put on hold or under review. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, and population growth will improve. It you know, regentrifying people just pushed out purely based on affordability. Uh, they'll they'll start to look over the north side and west side. We see those first home buyers coming across, uh, even from Sydney. You know, in the last decade, I've seen more deciding to rent fest in Melbourne. And generally, if they they living, working, renting in Sydney, uh, then they'll they might rent fest in Melbourne under a million dollars. Forget all the first home buy incentives and buy in the northwest. And they're already seeing growth now and improvement. So mm. you know, the growth based on time in the market, the yield will be beneficial. If, you know, based based on your purchase price or the time that you purchased. And just looking at 
some of the median value data. I mean, I, I mentioned before that you know places like Sydney and Melbourne have typically had a, a much higher price point. So it's 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 kind of the opinion that uh, you'd be of the opinion that you need to go regional or other um, areas to to get something at a lower price point. But just looking at the median value for Melbourne versus Brisbane, we're talking Melbourne's seven hundred and sixty six where. Brisbane is is seven hundred and thirty five, and even Adelaide is six seventy one. It's not that much of a difference now between um, Melbourne and Brisbane, and a lot of people have kind of talked about Brisbane for probably ten years before it boomed. Like it was so much cheaper than Sydney and Melbourne, so it just has to move. But it did. It didn't. It sat still for a long, long time. Do do you do you think that um, sort of the median price point has any influence as to whether people pick to go Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne? The Geared for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Uh, yeah, I think that it has, when they initially look at a high level, they'll look at where they can budget and first, if they can, you know, afford houses. Everyone wants to, you know, secure a house first, then, you know, good size, maybe dual occupancies and townhouses and units. Uh, definitely, you know, I, I've seen that, that discussion over the, over the years with Brisbane and the appeal for Brisbane. And, and you're right, you know, 10 years ago, it was cheaper to buy there than rent. It was very attractive. And then everyone jumped on it. And so, uh, you know, we don't we don't buy interstate ourselves. We'll, we'll we'll refer out to you know colleagues or peers that we trust interstate. But Victoria, where we're licensed, we'll get hands on and and um, you know search, inspect, and, and and do all the um, all the due diligence here in purchasing. But I feel that uh, yeah, the 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 question about what they can buy and how much maintenance long term, especially with with the reforms around the rental properties in Victoria, that sometimes affects, you know, beyond looking at median prices or what you can buy, that affects the decision of which state they're going to buy an investment in. So we've had a lot more owner occupiers as clients over the last few years, and investors starting to now look at the market if it, you know, if it seems as though we've reached the bottom and in in the um, you know the outlook for more improvement in in you know maybe some reasonable, sustainable growth, we're starting to get that discussion back with investors again, but where, where there might be some opportunity in Victoria. That's a really good uh, segue. I want to talk about legislation and and really before, I think even the minimum standards uh, and certainly the land tax questions that we had, mm. we looked at the percentage of people purchasing in Victoria versus uh, New South Wales versus Queensland. And of the three, Victoria was the poor cousin at around about 11% of, of investors picking that one as distinct from about 22 uh, in uh, in New South Wales and, and peaking at over 40% in Queensland. Um, what do you think uh, was making that that state or, or the state of Victoria less attractive at that point in time prior to the legislation or was there already rumblings that people were seeing like the minimum standards, like rent freezes? I mean, how long has that discussion been going for? 
the minimum standards has been several years. Like it was warning, you know, um, of it for many years and discussion. And then it was, you know, implemented uh, in 2001, you know, compacted with the lockdowns. And they stated that, you know, it will be enforced as, as of 2023 with all the minimum standards. So that was already affecting investors that I guess ones that were looking at exiting the market maybe in five years or so or retiring and cashing in in you know with five years they were starting to accelerate that process and thinking well we're out you know i'm not going to spend 20 or fifty thousand fixing this home because it's fair one thing to get the minimum standards checked you know get a plumber in get an electrician building inspectors that might cost you a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars it's the subsequent uh estimates and you know you, yourself with your skills as a quantity surveyor that's that's what scares most investors is the, the the bill shock of what needs to be done the vacancy loss getting the tenants out while it's not at standard and then um you know mm. the, the loss there of holding costs with high interest it was just i guess too many things compounding each year when there should have been good policy discussions about how do we incentivize investors to keep supplying the market. You know, we already had an exodus of people yeah. leaving Victoria, not just because they, you know, not just the owner occupiers from lockdown, but also people scared to invest when we had inspections shut down for almost six months or, you know, limitations on and off without mm. any certainty of when things would be freed up for people to come and rent and inspect property. So there was a lot of, a lot of concern, uh, and, and, uh, you know, without any clarity that make that, that creates fear. Yeah, and I, and I think when it came to the COVID response, there was Victoria and then the rest of Australia, right? Um, Mr. Andrews got very stuck in there, and I think um, you guys were internationally ranked as as you know the one of the highest lockdown locations in the world, which is yeah, I, I think contributed to, to to scaring people away from the state. But on top of that. Um, we've also had some uh, land tax changes there. Now, uh, have those been legislated as as yet? And, and what impact well, do you see yeah, those some, having? Some clients and investors are already receiving higher than um, expected land tax uh, bills, which has forced an increase. And if you speak to most sales agents, the 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 impact of you know the higher interest rates coming out of all the rental reforms, the land tax, um, you know, discussions and 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 raising land tax and even council rates, they're getting a higher higher um, uh, than normal level of inquiry or appraisals and people listing properties for sale that were their long term investors. So from their actual rent roll list of clients, uh, you know, I think after the state budget, after the Victorian state budget. Uh, there was an increase of like 70% inquiries from landlords contacting their sales agencies or contacting you know, advocates that work as vendors advocates to see what their property would be worth, how you know, the process of selling and or just concern about how these land tax uh, and other other costs are going to affect them that they, yeah, they just can't sustain long term. So that's, that's supply coming out of the market. Uh, plus long-term investors and builders, like we deal with a lot of smaller developers, you know, four to six unit sites that the cost to, to acquire um, risks of, you know, not being able to get lending for construction at reasonable rates, you know, second, third tier lenders or no lending at all for construction uh, and other holding costs. They just can't supply the market with investment property anymore. So there's, there's a big combination there that the government really have to, uh, you know, start thinking a little bit more 
with a longer scope or a longer lens and um, creating incentives to, to have this private sector of, of uh, investment property supply uh, step up quickly. Um, yeah, and, and all of those things that you mentioned have been disastrous for the supply of, of rental properties in Victoria and we're at crisis levels. So the government can talk about supply, 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 but they're talking about building, not necessarily nurturing the supply that's already in there from, from not selling. And I'm really interested to hear your yes. viewpoints on this as the state representative of the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association and a, a candidate for the board of the Real Estate Institute of Victoria as oh, at the time you. of recording. I'm sure once this goes live, you'll be, you'll be newly minted and we wish you all the best with that. But the the, the REIV in particular have, have put some great um, material out there on rental freezes and we just had the National Cabinet meet yesterday as at the time of recording and the the um, Labor government has basically said no, there won't be a, a two-year rental freeze. We already um, have one-year kind of rental increase caps in many states across the country and we're, I guess they're, they're going to mandate that as a as a national thing but they are talking about you know the increasing the supply and, and building say 240,000 uh, homes a year over the next five years wh wh where do you see the state of that dialogue and the level of education of the people that are proposing some of these policies and and can you give us your broad yeah, thoughts look, on it, it, it is uh, great to have promises but they have to be realistic in my, my thought is how fast and and if they haven't been able to over the last few decades supply enough social housing uh you know the migration issues you know we were already locked with migration it's barely picking up now and the demand is there that we need more housing now especially in the in, in the rental market most migrants need to rent for a few years before they're capable of buying the the construction issues we've we've seen you know, major volume builders that had contracts like Metricon need to be saved by the government and taxpayers uh, with, you know, contracts to supply social housing. There's also town planning issues. You know, there's not enough town planners there to get these things uh, to speed as well with the private sector. You know, even forget the social housing yep. sector, but even with the private sector, it's not enough uh, speed on town planning reform. So that's meant to be reviewed and the government's even discussing taking that away from local municipalities and bringing it into a government that's not not doing the job with the things they've got at hand in their in their portfolios at the moment so I'm quite concerned about how how realistic it is that they're going to um, yes great not to put the rent freeze in and have that discussion now uh, to, to take the fear out of uh, consumers because you know, they'll, they'll just paralyze and not make any decision not not purchase investment not purchase to occupy but uh, I, I think the um, you know, the building chain and you know, um, the, the actual uh, construction industry and costs with construction and speed there, I don't see it happening soon enough. It needs to be a combination with, yes, keep the focus on the social housing development and keep going with that even uh, with a bigger plan and more, more properties to be constructed by government, but at the same time, create policies that make uh, stronger incentives for investors and private uh, ownership and supply the rental market it will naturally uh you know with more supply in the rental market and private uh rental market with, with private owners it will naturally reduce the cost of rental properties and keep it at a more even competitive rate so more people can af uh, afford to rent and property investors won't care 
if costs reduce slightly, if they're getting tax uh, incentives and benefits to supply and own investment property. It's a, it's a balance there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I went, went on a little bit, but it's a, yeah, a topic that there's a lot to discuss. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We could probably do a 10-part mm-hmm. series on this, Mark. No, but I appreciate your insights there. I think uh, from from my perspective, we've the, the commentary in and around the National Cabinet ignored the fact that, you know, there's lots of numbers thrown around, but somewhere around 81% of private uh, of rental accommodation uh, is managed by the private sector, but there was there was no discussion about the role that they're playing, whether they are incentivized yeah. or disincentivized. I think there's a fairly strong argument to say they've been disincentivized both in individual states and nationally by many of these rent freeze uh, rhetorics. But thankfully, the government was clever enough to realise that that would yes. make things worse in the long term. What, why do you think investors? really haven't even got a, a mention in respect to the part that they play for rental affordability? Uh, it, it tends to be uh, overlooked. I know you know the, the rent freeze campaign from the REIV uh, that was published uh, you know, uh, last, last week as well that was actually uh, well considered and researched and even uh, you know, uh, comments on how the rent freeze issues uh, hadn't worked overseas, but they did mention about the private um, uh, sector and and that the private landlords and private investors or private uh, rental providers, the term correct term in Victoria now, uh, do supply most of that, that rental market. But there will be, I think, um, a lot of discussion raised if they mention it because that there's going to be a void with the amount of private investors looking to leave the market with the you know, the expenses and, and um, uh, pressure on them from not just the land taxes, the interest rates, the other maintenance issues and costs of, of retaining a, a, an investment property, uh, it, it, that's going to be reduced significantly if more investors keep exiting the market. So it's going to open up a bigger can of worms mm. that I don't think they were prepared to. That's my personal opinion. They weren't prepared to answer yep. or have answers for. Yeah, I suppose a, a commitment to to build more homes or or at least try to build more homes is great. But for all the issues that you raise, you know, a shortage of planners and certifiers, mm. uh, construction costs being uh, a little bit higher than we would like to like to be dealing with, the availability of finance yeah. and uh, developers feeling comfortable that they're going to be able to make uh, a profit. You know, those things combined with international migration has ramped back up. Um, the the household occupant ratio has gone down from something like 2.6 to 2.56 or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but that's that's actually resulted in an extra 140,000 yes. homes required because less people are living in properties with divorce and all sorts of things like that. When you add all of those things up together, do you think we've got a chance of solving this with the policies we have in place in the moment or can it only well, just get worse? the policies in place at the moment don't help and they only add to the issue. But, you know, the government's proven in times of need and crisis like the, like the lockdowns that if they want to change policies, they can get together and do it quickly overnight. We don't need long mm. meetings and discussions where there's, you know, uh, you know people with different opinions that needs to be that the, the focus on 
assisting to ease some pressure on the private investors so that people have somewhere to live and there's going to be less uh, less risk with um, you know homelessness and uh, pressures there's been discussions that you know and even studies overseas where the, if there's too much pressure on the private rental market or housing supply then it creates a black market of uh, you know renters that can afford the properties that are available taking advantage of private vent, uh, uh, um, you know tenants paying them overpriced fees just to get a room just to get bored and they're not going to be managed mm. by professionals like professional property managers or owners that are under um, uh, you know concern and and um, uh, needing to uh, cooperate and and um, deal with the legislation requirements because you're going to have uh, so you know tenants doing unlawful tenancies between each other property conditions uh, and even with all these risks, with construction, there's also still the labour issue, the, the labour shortage or labour costs to construct as well. That's that's another issue. Absolutely. Uh, and I've noticed even a lot of the town planners from the local municipalities um, being, you know, uh, offered positions with state government infrastructure projects. So that's created a shortage on town planners that are skilled, which is great. They're needed. Infrastructure is needed. But there's there's a, a lot of movings about in different sectors, which is creating. Uh, pressure on on this normal residential housing supply. Uh, so, without going off topic too much, I think that uh, if you know they look at the tax reforms on investors quickly, uh, you know there's been discussion not just REIV, other uh, peak associations and and bodies mentioning that like you know stamp duty is seen as a as a as a lazy tax. It's a big revenue for the government, but there's other ways, there's other discussions to raise and you know acquire the similar amount of revenue without it affecting just one you know percentage of property owners or private property investors which are struggling to keep that investment property anyway most of just one investment owner mum and dads that have struggled to get one investment property uh, there could be ways to look at maybe increasing gst slightly where everybody wears it we're all collective in this you know country and uh, be able to still maintain the same levels of revenue reduce the stamp duty Mm. Yeah, stamp duty is such a huge uh, component of of state revenues. Yet it really disincentivizes people from shifting when the property is no longer sort of sufficient for them or, or adequate. You know, it's the age old story of the little old lady in the five bedroom yes. house, right? Yeah, or sitting on an investment property that doesn't need meet our state's minimum standards, and they've got vacant properties around. But just because they can't afford to fix them and rent them and they don't know if they can sell yeah. them yet, they're, they're, they're in a fortunate position that they're not forced to sell. So there's a lot of vacant dwellings out there. Yeah, which just seems crazy when we're talking about you know so many more people becoming homeless yeah. every day, and and that and that's that's the real thing that we need to I guess to keep motivating us to to discuss and work on this because that's a real human cost and a pretty sad state of affairs. So in in that regard, I I wish you all the best in your advocacy work, um, Mark, and I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I recommend anyone. Um, uh, that's in the property investment game should be following market uh, master advocates. Um, master advocates, that was a, a, a mouthful on my perspective. <laughs> Apologies for that. But uh, thank you very much uh, for sharing those thoughts oh, uh, in Mark. and around uh, policy at the moment, Mark, and giving us a lay of the land of Melbourne as well. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure to have a chat with you like always. <laughs> we'll have you back for sure. Cheers, Thanks, Mark. Man.